Pastor Woody joked at the beginning of the service about the shorter pulpit. Some of us are more vertically challenged than others. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the pulpit that we have in our sanctuary is very tall. And when you put something on it and you have bifocals, you can't quite see when it's that tall and you're my height. So sorry, Pastor Woody. I forgive you. All right, thank you. Our scripture this morning, we're going to be turning to Luke chapter 5, reading together verses 1 through 11. I'll be reading them. Uh, you can read along with me. Luke 5, 1 through 11. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let the nets down for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word, for the Gospels especially, for the glimpse that they give us into Jesus and into our own lives as well. We pray this morning that you would uh, anoint every word that's spoken to share your word and fill in um, any of the weaknesses that might be in my words. Lord, we thank you that your Holy Spirit speaks directly to our hearts, and we open our hearts to you now to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Working along the edge of this vast lake, water lapping against the rocky ground at the shore, a young man with calloused hands alongside his fellow fishermen is busily and wearily working on cleaning his fishing nets. He has endured yet another long night of fishing in Lake Gennesaret, which is also known as the Sea of Galilee. More than 20 different kinds of fish are caught in this very large freshwater lake, but this young man and his associates were not successful in catching many, if any, of them on this particular night. Night is the best time to catch fish here when the sun's rays are not gleaming through the water like daggers keeping the fish away. What thoughts might go through a weary fisherman's mind at the end of a night of toil with nothing to show for it? If you were this fisherman, what might you be thinking? When our boys were about 12 and 7 years old, Craig's parents took Ryan and Corey along with their cousin Levi fishing at a place where you're almost guaranteed to catch fish because there are so many. They'd been to that place before and had caught many fish, which is exciting for young boys. On this day, however, Corey caught only one small one, Levi caught a whole bunch of fish, 
and Ryan did not catch any. He hooked a few, but he wasn't able to get them in without losing them. When they arrived back home, Ryan was silent and withdrawn. And if you know Ryan, that's not his norm. He was so unusually quiet and down that Craig's dad drove to our house again the next day just to make sure that Ryan was really okay. So it strikes me that if a young person who's merely fishing for sport would be so discouraged by not catching any fish, how much more discouraged might a person feel who fishes as their profession, as their means of supporting their family, and as one of the providers of a necessary food staple for their community? <clears throat> the kind of fishing employed by Peter and his fellow fishermen was net fishing, which involved a circular net that had heavy weights around its perimeter. The occupation of fishermen was laborious, it involved much strain, long hours, and sometimes little results. So as Peter and his companions, Andrew, James, and John, worked at the water's edge, cleaning their nets after this long night of toil and hard work, they must have been more than ready to head home to rest and to be refreshed. That was not, however, what they were about to do. Luke tells us that Jesus also was alongside the lake teaching the word of God to a crowd of people who were pressing in on him, with the image in the Greek being that they were leaning in toward him to catch every word. Oh, that we would share the same kind of attentiveness to Jesus and his teaching. Leaning in. Jesus spots Peter and the others along with their two boats at the water's edge, and they were not strangers to him. This was not their first meeting. In John's Gospel, we're told the story of Andrew, Peter's brother, who was a disciple of John the Baptist, and his first meeting with Jesus. In John 1, 36 to 42, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him, at Peter, and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. By the way, the Greek word that's translated as Jesus looked at him, and blepo is the same word that Luke will later use to describe Jesus' piercing glance from across the high priest's courtyard after Peter's denial of Jesus. The sense in John's account of the first meeting between Jesus and Peter is that Jesus, when he looked at Peter, really looked at him and saw who he was as well as who he will be. You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, Peter, which means rock. John tells us just a short time later in chapter 2 of his gospel that Jesus did not need to hear any testimony about a person. He knew what was in a person's heart. He certainly knew what was in Peter's heart. In the fourth chapter of Luke, we're told that Jesus left the synagogue and went to Simon's house which, by the way, was a two-story house located 80-something feet from the synagogue in Capernaum based on the archaeological excavation of the area. 
Luke tells us that Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and that Jesus healed her and healed many others as well. And it appears that Jesus may have stayed the night at Peter's home. These fishermen were not strangers to Jesus when he comes upon their boats along the lake shore. They were followers of Jesus, friends of Jesus, who hadn't fully left their fishing business to follow him yet. Which brings us back to our passage for today in Luke 5. On this day, recorded in Luke's gospel, Jesus is teaching the crowd at the lake and sees a few of the men who have been following him with their boats, cleaning their fishing nets. Because the crowd of people was so close to him as he taught that day, perhaps he feared being crushed by them or even being pushed into the lake. So he got into Peter's boat and asked him to put out a little way from the shore where he then sat in the boat and continued teaching the crowd. When he finished speaking, he told them to put their boat out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. This verb, which is translated let down, is in the plural form, which implies that both Peter and Andrew were there in the boat with Jesus. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Behind these words, in his head, I imagine that Peter was saying something like, Really? Are you crazy? What do you think we've been doing all night long? What do you, a carpenter, know about fishing anyway? If you knew anything about it, you'd know that daytime, especially morning, is not the time to be out here on the lake fishing. The fish are hiding from the sun's rays which pierce through the surface of the water. Not to mention the fact that we're exhausted. It's time for us to be resting, not fishing. And furthermore, we have just finished cleaning our nets, which is a job in and of itself. And now you want us to put them out again? You want us to do what? The turning point in this passage, though, comes in the very next words that Peter utters. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. But because you say so, There's every reason in the world not to go out into the deep water and not to let down the nets. But because you have the authority, because I want to follow you, because I trust you, because you are master, the word Peter uses to address Jesus, because you are master, I will do as you say. Crazy as it might seem to me, and let down the nets. Peter, the only disciple who is recorded to have said no to Jesus, comes dangerously close at this time to saying no. And the only reason he gives for not saying no, because you say so, will in time become the guiding principle for his life. At this brief moment in time, Peter was able to give up his own authority, which was impressive. He was a skilled and successful fisherman who had a good business. He gave up his own authority and surrendered to the authority of Jesus. But because you say so, I will. Is that what you say to Jesus? Because, what you, because you say so became the guiding principle for Peter's life. Is it yours? Peter's obedience at that moment of decision led to great reward. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Can you imagine a catch like that? 
Can you imagine what Peter and Andrew might have been thinking? Peter and Andrew, who knew it was futile to let their nets out in the morning, who knew they wouldn't catch anything if they hadn't caught anything throughout the night. What must have been their thoughts when the nets began to break with the weight of their catch? Can you imagine what James and John thought when their fishing partners were gesturing and signaling that they needed help with a second boat to bring in all that had been caught? Can you imagine what all of them must have thought when the load of fish was enough to fill two boats and nearly caused them both to sink? What would your response have been? Luke tells us when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. The Greek word here used for astonished means that they were amazed to the point of being terrified. Peter, who earlier in this passage had addressed Jesus as master, now addresses him Lord a term of high respect in this context. God's presence in the work of Jesus makes Peter more fully recognize Jesus' authority and makes him painfully aware of his own sinfulness. Michael Card, in his book, A Fragile Stone, which is about Peter, says, in response to the miraculous catch, Peter asks for what he really does not want. He asks for Jesus to leave. He, Peter, has become the frightened fish thrashing in the net, wanting only to get away, or at least for Jesus to get away from him. Ultimately, the Lord's provision for Peter's sin will be even more abundant than his provision of this miraculous catch of fish. It's too early for Peter to know about the provision that will be made at the cross. For now, he is just simply assured with the words that Jesus utters to Peter on many occasions, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Verse 10, then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. The disciples' response was complete devotion to Jesus and to the work of his kingdom. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. As I said earlier, the turning point in this encounter between Peter and Jesus comes with Peter's response. But because you say so, I will. Is that how you and I respond to the Lord when he speaks to us? Whether through our own personal time in the word, through sermons we hear, or Bible studies we participate in, or through the speaking of the Holy Spirit to our hearts? Because you say so, I will. I can't even begin to tell you the number of times my children have questioned Craig and me through the years when we've told them to do or not do something. Their answer to our instruction more often than not and I know that I'm not alone in this, is why or why not? Your chuckles tell me I'm not alone. And the typical parental response is because I said so. The meaning, of course, being that I'm your parent and God has given me the authority over you to teach and train you in the way you should go. Yeah. <laughs> Parenting is a challenging endeavor, isn't it? Working to shape the response of our children to authority is one of the most significant things we do. The self-centered, rebellious nature can be seen in even the youngest among us. You can test this premise to see if I'm right. Either don't give to a child something that they want or take away from a child something that they want, and you will quickly see 
and here the intensity of self-centered human nature. The surrendering of our wants and of our will to one in authority over us goes against that nature. Love and trust are important pieces in learning to surrender our wills. Brian Stevenson, a Christian attorney who founded the Equal Justice Initiative and author of a wonderful book uh, that I commend to you, Just Mercy, shared a TED talk in 2012 about injustices in our crim criminal justice system. I watch it every now and then to remind myself, myself of some of the issues that uh, people face in our country, and I suggest that you watch it too. But in the opening of this TED talk, as he framed the impact of identity on a person, he shared about the influence of his grandmother. He said, I grew up in a house that was the traditional African-American home that was dominated by a matriarch, and that matriarch was my grandmother. She was tough, she was strong, she was powerful. She was the end of every argument in our family. She was the beginning of a lot of the arguments in our family. <laughs> she was the daughter of people who were actually enslaved. Her parents were born in slavery in Virginia in the 1840s. She was born in the 1880s, and the experience of slavery very much shaped the way she saw the world. And my grandmother was tough, he said. She was also loving. When I would see her as a little boy, she'd come up to me and she'd give me these hugs and she'd squeeze me so tight I could barely breathe and then she'd let me go. And an hour or two later, if I saw her, she'd come over to me and she'd say, Brian, do you still feel me hugging you? And if I said no, she'd assault me again. <laughs> and if I said yes, she'd leave me alone. And she just had this quality that you always wanted to be near her. And the only challenge was that she had 10 children. My mom was the youngest of her 10 kids, and sometimes when I would go and spend time with her, it would be difficult to get her time and attention. My cousins would be running around everywhere. And I remember when I was about eight or nine years old, waking up one morning, going into the living room, and all of my cousins were running around. And my grandmother was sitting across the room staring at me. And at first, I thought we were playing a game, and I would look at her and I'd smile, and she was very serious. And after about 15 or 20 minutes of this, she got up and she came across the room and she took me by the hand and she said, come on, Brian, you and I are going to have a talk. And I remember this just like it happened yesterday. I will never forget it, he said. She took me out back and she said, Brian, I'm going to tell you something, but you don't tell anybody what I tell you. I said, okay, mama. She said, now you make sure you don't do that. I said, sure. Then she sat me down and she looked at me and she said, I want you to know I've been watching you. And she said, I think you're special. She said, I think you can do anything you want to do. I will never forget it, he said. And then she said, I just need you to promise me three things, Brian. I said, okay, mama. She said, the first thing I want you to promise me is that you'll always love your mom. She said, that's my baby girl and you have to promise me now that you'll always take care of her. Well, I adored my mom, so I said, yes, mama, I'll do that. Then she said, the second thing I want you to promise me is that you'll always do the right thing, even when the right thing is the hard thing. And I thought about it, and I said, yes, mama, I'll do that. Then finally, she said, the third thing I want you to promise me is that you'll never drink alcohol. Well, I was nine years old, so I said, yes, mama, I'll do that. <laughs> 
I grew, then he goes on, I grew up in the country in the rural south, and I have a brother a year older than me and a sister a year younger. By the way, I went to college with Brian Stevenson and his brother Howard, who was a year before him, not his sister. Um, when I was about 14 or 15, one day my brother came home, and he had this six-pack of beer. I don't know where he got it. And he grabbed me and my sister, and we went out in the woods. And we were kind of just out there doing the stuff we crazily did. And he had a sip of this beer, and he gave some to my sister, and she had some, and they offered it to me. I said, no, 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 that's okay. You all go ahead. I'm not going to have any beer. My brother said, come on, we're doing this today. You always do what we do. I had some. Your sister had some. Have some beer. I said, no, I don't feel right about that. You all go ahead. You all go ahead. And then my brother started staring at me. He said, what's wrong with you? Have some beer. Then he looked at me real hard and he said, oh, I hope you're not still hung up on that conversation mama had with you. I said, well, what are you talking about? He said, oh, mama tells all the grandkids that they're special. <laughs> he said, I was devastated. And I'm going to admit something to you, he went on. I'm going to tell you something I probably shouldn't. I know this might be broadcast broadly. You realize TED Talks go all over the world. He said, but I'm 52 years old, and I'm going to admit to you that I've never had a drop of alcohol, which was followed by resounding applause in this crowd. When I thought about my grandmother, of course she would think all her grandkids were special. But my grandfather was in prison during Prohibition. My male uncles died of alcohol-related diseases. And these were the things that she thought we needed to commit to. Brian Stevenson was sharing about love and about authority and about how both together helped to shape his identity. His grandmother could influence both his identity and his behavior because she had authority in his life, loving authority. And the authority of a loving parent or grandparent gives us just a hint into the authority that the Lord, who is all-loving, who is love himself, has over us. Jesus himself linked authority and love and obedience. In John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. And then verse 21 says, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Because you say so, I will. Because you say so, I will love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because you say so, I will love my neighbor as myself. Because you say so, I will share the gospel with others despite my fears of rejection and persecution. Because you say so, I will forgive the person who has wronged me even if they haven't asked for my forgiveness. Because you say so, I will resist the temptation to worship things, money, material wealth, and will worship you by giving generously, even sacrificially, to the work of your church here and throughout the world. Because you say so, I will serve others and look for ways to meet their needs, even though doing so will inevitably inconvenience me. Because you say so, I will be careful what I allow my eyes to see, guarding myself from lust, covetousness, and other such sins. Because you say so, I will surrender my right to have things my way 
and will work toward reconciliation and peace with my brothers and sisters and will help others to do the same, being an ambassador of reconciliation. Because you say so, I will be faithful to my marriage vows and I will act in loving ways toward my spouse even if I don't feel loving. Because you say so, I will not lie. In all of my dealings with others, I will be completely honest. Because you say so, I will be a person who prays. Because you say so, I will not steal. I will not take anything from anyone that belongs to them. Because you say so, I will have sexual relations only within a marriage relationship. Because you say so, I will confess my sins and seek your forgiveness. Because you say so, I will help to meet the needs of those without food or water or clothing or shelter or medical care or education or parental love. Because you say so, I will dress modestly so that I do not cause anyone to stumble. Because you say so, I will obey my parents. Because you say so, I will seek justice and righteousness. Because you say so, I will tame my tongue and guard my words, whether they're spoken or written. Because you say so, I will look at my own faults more honestly and critically and look at the faults of others through the lens of grace instead of the other way around. Because you say so, I will go wherever you send me, even to the ends of the earth, so that others may hear the news of your sacrificial love. Obviously, we could go on and on. Maybe none of those even touched where you need to deal with the lordship of Christ in your life. Because you say so, I will let down the nets. In this simple phrase, Peter uttered his first act of obedience to a loving Lord. His first surrender of his authority, they were on his turf. His first surrender of what he knew, that you don't catch fish in the morning and that there were no fish to catch in that part of the lake that day. And his first surrender of what he wanted, he wanted to be done with his fishing work and go home to rest. Surrendering our authority, the right to be boss of our own lives, surrendering our knowledge, surrendering our desires, those might be good places for us to start too. Through the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, Peter was the obvious leader of the early church. Then following his miraculous escape from prison in Acts 12, Peter almost completely drops from the scene and he passes on the leadership role in the church to James while he becomes a missionary to the Gentiles, once again living out, because you say so, I will. Peter continued to obey what the Lord asked him to do despite the major cultural shift of sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. Church history tells us that Peter, in the closing years of his life, built up the church in Rome along with Paul, with whom he was killed by Nero, Peter crucified, and Paul beheaded. His first surrender of authority here on a boat in a lake was the beginning of a journey of surrender that led to a catch of fish, men and women following Christ, that like the first catch was miraculous and astonishing in number. And think of it for just a moment. We today are part of that catch because he obeyed and went to the Gentiles. The almost 2,000 years of the church are filled with the stories of men, women, and children like Peter who have said, because you say so, I will. There's an old poem that aptly describes the choice to do the will of God. 
One ship drives east and another drives west with the selfsame winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales which tell us the way to go. In her penetrating book entitled If, Amy Carmichael, who served the Lord in India for most of her adult life, wrote these words about following Jesus, surrendering to him, trusting him. She wrote, the way of love is never an easy way. If our hearts be set on walking in that way, it must, we must be prepared to suffer. It is the way the master went. Should not the servant tread it still? It is possible that we may be enclosed in circumstances which drain natural love till we feel dry as grass on an Indian hillside under a burning sun. In contrast to that dryness, she continues, the empty riverbed inherits the water that pours through it from the heights. It does not create that water, it only receives it and its treasuries are filled, its pools overflow for the blessing and refreshment of the land. It is so with us, excuse me, our treasuries of time, our years with all their months, weeks, days, hours, minutes are filled with the flowing treasure of love that we may help others. Who could have thought of such joy for us but, who, but he whose name is love? And she continues, our Lord speaks simply, trust me, my child. He says, trust me with a humbler heart and a fuller abandon to my will than thou ever didst before. Our Lord says the same to us today. Trust me, my child. Trust me with a humbler heart and a fuller abandon to my will than you have ever done before. What shall our response be? Because you say so, Jesus, I will. This morning we'll be sharing communion together. Those who will be serving can come to the front at this time. As we prepare, I want to remind you that you don't have to be a member of our church or of the Brethren in Christ Church to partake of these elements. Communion is a remembrance of the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus for all who love and follow him, for all who call him Lord. We'll be coming to the front this morning to receive the bread and the cup, and we'll be dismissed by the ushers row by row, exiting from the right side of the row and then coming back on the left. Gluten-free bread is available in small individual bags for anyone who may need it or choose it. As you're waiting, I encourage you to spend some moments in quiet reflection and prayer. Is there some area of your life that you've not yet surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus? Is there some sin that you need to confess, some commitment that you need to make? Spend some moments, too, in prayer for your brothers and sisters here, that they, too, would be surrendered to Jesus, obeying his commands, living under his Lordship, experiencing his love. In his book, The Great Omission, Dallard Willard quote, quotes A.W. Tozer, who expressed his feeling that a notable heresy has come into being throughout evangelical Christian circles, the widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as savior 
and that we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. As you ponder the cross this morning, it isn't only about Jesus being our Savior. It's about Jesus being our Lord. As we partake of the bread and the cup today, we remember the suffering of Jesus, the breaking of his body, the spilling of his blood, and his triumph over sin. In communion, we celebrate Jesus, our Savior and Lord, and we meditate on the sacrifice he made so that we could be his disciples, his followers, children of God under his loving authority. 1 Corinthians 11:23 to 26 tells us, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. We thank you, Jesus, this morning as we bow together for the sacrifice of your life, for the breaking of your body, for the spilling of your blood, for the wounds that you took on on our behalf. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that such love demands of us obedience and following. So, Lord, we ask you to give us a new um, a commitment to follow you in whatever you call us to do or not to do. Thank you for this reminder, this remembrance, this celebration. We ask your blessing on the elements as we receive them and on the truth that they bring into our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. As we share in our communion response that will be up on the wall, the questions posed also come from Scripture. We, um, sometimes people wonder, what are these questions? They're from 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Perhaps you want to look at the passage. Let's uh, share them together. My brothers and sisters, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Take and eat this bread, remembering he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your heart and be thankful. My brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup remembering that he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. You're invited now to come to the table of the Lord. 